That's a great question. I was always thinking, well, this is the only thing that's keeping me here. But after seven years, so my whole thing was that I was working for a big company back home, PricewaterhouseCoopers. It was prestige. Everybody was like, good for you. This is going to be great. And then I got here and everybody's like, oh, MBA, Slovakia. Okay, great. Uh, we have an opening for a housekeeper or a waitress. <laughs> that was Mira Johnson on this week's episode of the People of Veterinary Medicine podcast. The People of Veterinary Medicine, powered by Luca Veterinary Data Security. Greetings, DVMs, practice managers, vet techs, support staff, veterinary consultants, and podcast enthusiasts. Welcome or welcome back. In this week's episode, we are talking with CPA Mira Johnson. And this is a really interesting episode. She's a new Vet Partners member and it's how I met her. And so if you are a consultant, you don't know about Vet Partners, um, I can say as a member of the membership committee that you should definitely check us out and uh, reach out to me if you're interested in joining because we are always welcoming new and great veterinary professionals. So with that being said, uh, Mira is a new, new member. And as I got to know her, she is from Slovakia or what used to be known as Czechoslovakia. And I think that's, I am very fascinated with other cultures and I love traveling, especially before the whole, this whole COVID thing. Um, I was, we were, we were trying to get out at least once a year to get overseas and kind of explore new cultures. And I love culture shock. So uh, the times I've been to Asia, I, the thing I love about it most is the absolute culture shock, like just how different it is from the U.S. And so while Europe is, is very similar, um, I'm just very interested in different cultures. And so in this episode, we talk a lot about the Slovakian culture and their emphasis on education and how at a very young age, I think Mira said around 12 years old, you kind of have to make a decision as to what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And that kind of leads you into more of a, a specialized based high school education, which I think is really interesting. And we kind of get into the importance of that and, and what that's like. And that really resonated with me is because I wasn't somebody that did, I didn't do very well uh, in, in elementary and all through high school. So primary school, my grades were okay. It wasn't until I got to college that I actually got really fascinated with my education because I could kind of really hone in on the things that I was interested in. And I just did better. And so, you know, I think I ended up graduating from college with a 3.98 or something like that. So almost a 4.0. I had to be in there somewhere. And then I, that led to me being able to get into, to, into law school, which I was also very fascinated with. And so, yeah, I, I think it's just, I loved learning about different cultures. And then at the end, we also talk about it. All, again, it always comes back to the people, right? The people of veterinary medicine. And we dig into the hiring process and what it has been like for them and how they have, uh, you know, built their cultural values and, you know, working with smaller practices. What does she see there and the importance of staff and how that all looks. So again, really a great episode. Mira was a fantastic guest and I really think you are going to enjoy this episode. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. But first, this episode is brought to you by Luca Veterinary Data Security, where our mission is to help veterinary practice owners everywhere realize the value of their data and help them take the necessary steps to protect it. So if you need help protect data in your practice, the first thing you can do is go to luca.vet and download our five simple steps to protect your practice ebook, which is free. So again, go to www.luca.vet and look for our five simple steps to start protecting your practice. 
it going? Good. How are you? Good. Good. How was your weekend? It was very good, actually. How was yours? It was good. I was on the uh, western slope of Colorado, which is like quite uh, pretty different from uh, where I'm at. So there's like a lot of wineries and stuff out there, and it's uh, it's, it's a lot. It's kind of more of like a desert kind of climate. So it was really hot. It was like eight, high 80s. So yeah. Nice. Good. Yeah. All right. So any questions or anything for me before we get started? No, not really. All right. Awesome. So we'll go with it. We'll, we'll get started. Well, thank you for being here with me today and, and taking time out of your day to chat with me. I'm super excited to learn more about you and, and um, your, your story. So the way I always like to start is, you know, how did you get started? What, what led you to veterinary medicine? How did you get where you're at today? Thanks, Glenn, for having me. Appreciate it. The start of the veterinary industry for me was um, about seven years ago when I met Jim. And uh, it was just as simple as applying for a position. And I really didn't know what was I going into. I really, uh, we always make fun of it nowadays, but I just needed a job at that point. And Jim was looking for somebody who um, can take over as far as the technical part of the business. And I got hired and it was just fully transitioning to only veterinary niche practice. So he started a business 40 plus years ago and it was a CPA, small firm, traditional, get your taxes, bring your documents and um, done a tax return. But he did have a lot of businesses as well. And one day he discovered there was a lot of veterinary clients that he was inclining to and um, completely redone the business and start focusing only on veterinary industry. And uh, I just kind of fall into and I love what I do. I think it's a, it's a great change from uh, what I expected. And uh, once we start diving deeper in the industry and learning more about it um, by attending national conferences, it was an eye opener what there is and how deep can you actually get in. And I'm not saying that now we know everything, there's always more to learn, of course. So if you, if you meet somebody who says, oh, I know it all, then run, run, run for the hills, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So how did you, like, what was your, what's your background in the, the accounting world? How did you get interested in finance and what led you to that? So I was born and raised in Slovakia, which is in the heart of Europe. And um, I wanted to follow my mom in her footsteps. Um, the, the college and the, the education back in Slovakia is a little bit different. When you're like 12 years old and you're done with the elementary school, they kind of say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And as a 12 year old, some of us know, and some of us like, I don't know, I kind of like my mom, so I'm just gonna do what she did. And um, I went to business academy. So our high school is pretty much already oriented on something. And this was business economics, accounting, bookkeeping. And I loved it. It was, it came easy and I love the numbers. I love when it all matched pretty much what all the bean counters are like, oh, I like when it, you know, balance and everything. But uh, from there I, went to the capital of the Slovakia where I attended college and got my MBA. 
and it was in financial management and accounting. And uh, after that, I moved to United. Well, I actually worked for um, a year to for PricewaterhouseCoopers, and that was that was a great experience. I did audits, and it was kind of like a you're just a number, and you work a lot of hours, and and you are learning a lot. And um, uh, when I moved to United States, I uh, it was kind of hard because not everybody is like, oh, you have an MBA. Oh, wait, do you have a Slovakian MBA? I have no idea what that means. So there was a lot of push, and um, I start working towards my CPA license. And that's pretty much when I met Jim. I had all my CPA exams completed, and to get a CPA license in the state of Idaho, you have to have a certain amount of hours to, to get signed off of the license. So that's all I was missing. And like I said, I was just looking for a job, and that's how I kind of end up in Jim's company. So tell me a little bit more about this, uh, this idea of, you know, being 12 and kind of having to make a big life decision. And for you, you said, you, you said you kind of wanted to follow what your mom did, but also it also seemed that later on that was the right decision. So, you know, growing up in Slovakia, how do you, yeah, I mean, at 12 years old, how do you decide what, you know, I think it's unique that it sounds like the high, that high school is more, it's almost kind of like more call it like a college level type thing where you're actually focusing on getting real world experience in what you would potentially would be interested in doing. But at 12 years old, how do you make that decision? I mean, I know that I, you know, I started out as like a psychology major and then I switched to technology and then I went to law school. So it's like, you know, my educational background was all over the place and I took me a while to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. So maybe elaborate on that process a little bit. Yeah, it's a very interesting process. And since I grew up with it, I never questioned it. It didn't, it didn't seem weird or, you know, unreal. But it was, it was pretty much depending on your grades through the elementary school. So if you were a good student, they would recommend that you attend either the business academy or go to high school that's very similar to United States high school where you where you still don't know what your focus is and they always say, well, it's a preparation for the college because college will give you something that will bounce you off. So this high school was kind of like, you still take biology, you still chemistry and physics, and then whatever you like, that's what you would decide to go for the college. So you had to pick what you want. You could choose two different high schools and you would go and take an exam. And let's just say there was only five classrooms for that year in the business academy. So you had to, and it was 30 kids in each class and there was five classrooms. So 150 people from the whole town. Um, so you had to place in those 150 as a best. And I can't remember, I think there was a math, um, kind of similar like English, but it would be Slovakian language and some other, I think it was four, four sections of the exam, but don't, don't, don't quote me on it. I'm not hundred percent sure anymore. It was a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, then if you wouldn't make it, then you would go for the second round, which was usually something lower. So if you didn't have good grades, they would, uh, the tutors or the teachers that you were close with in elementary school, they would say, okay, well, what would you like to do? Maybe you want to be a cook. So then you would go to a cook school, which was only three years. And, or you could be a waitress. So you actually like 
when to get education to be a waitress. And um, there was a lot of other options. Some of them were three years, some of them are four year schools, but um, the business academy seemed like it seems, seemed like a good step for me because if you still wanted to go to college, you could. If you didn't want to go to college, you had some kind of background or some kind of skill level that you could like be a bookkeeper or um, they always say, well, if you're a girl, you're going to be a secretary. And if you're a guy, you're going to be a manager. <laughs> Interesting. So that was like, that was the kind of the cultural moray was that was kind of the thought process. That was kind of thought process. Yeah. So if you would go to high school and then you realize you can't go to college, they would say, well, now you know nothing. You have little knowledge of everything, but it doesn't really help you in your life. So if you'd go to school and learn how to do woodwork, then at least you have woodwork, right? But out of the, what they call gymnasium, there was nothing pretty much what you can say, oh, I can do this. No, you so, when you, so when you're growing up, is there a, like, because of the importance of this like high school level, level education and the testing standards to get in, was there a big importance? Is there a high importance placed on education at a young age? Yes. So you really want to have good grades. It's all about good grades when you are in, in elementary school. And the elementary schools goes for eight grades. So you go eight years and then you go to high school for four years. And the, the, the high school was kind of the same way because you had to have good grades to get to college. It was uh, the college is free back home in Slovakia, so you don't have to pay any tuitions. You have to still pay for your boards and, and books and everything like that, but you don't have to actually um, pay for being there or taking lessons. So that's free, and that was I think that was nice in a way. And you still would have to pass the exam. And again, it's the same thing. Um, they would hire 400 students for that one year, and if you place above everyone, you're getting in, and if you didn't, then you have to go somewhere else, and you would have to pay for taking the exam on college. I think that was the only difference that I remember that my parents are like, well, how many colleges do you want to try for? You can't try for very many because every application costs money. Oh, interesting. So you have to pay to apply to get into, interesting. So, you know, what the, What this makes me think of is I recently heard, um, there was a there was a survey that was done on young American children, and then there is a and then they also surveyed young uh, Chinese children. And what I found was super interesting is that, that I think it, it, it was something astronomical. It was like in the sixty or seventy percent range of children that were interviewed in the U.S. or of the children that were interviewed in China. You know, when they asked them, the question was, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" Uh, um, you know, 60 or 70% of the Chinese children said something like, um, a physic, you know, astrophysicist, astronomer, chemist, biologist, um, kind of all these really like heavy educational based careers, right? Where you, I mean, if you're thinking about, I don't know what it's like in China, so I'm, I'm kind of clutching his trust a little bit, but my assumption is here to really succeed in a lot of those types of fields or like even mathematics or accounting, you know, you would have to have something more advanced like a CPA or a PhD or something like that. But in the U S when they interviewed the children, they said they wanted to be like YouTube or Instagram stars. <laughs> so it's like, 
our culture has gone so far. Like I, I really, I really find it fascinating. This, you know, this importance that Slovakia places on young, younger people's education uh, because it seems like, I mean, this is one, one survey, but I think if we look at the cultural norms in the U S now that we have kind of seemed to have lost our way as far as the importance of really learning some of these more complex topics but also what I would love to hear your thoughts on are like, what about the kids, you know, like me, I'm very much more a hands-on learner. So maybe I had the smart, you know, maybe I'm a child in Slovakia and I have the smarts to be able to do really well, but I'm just better at learning in a different way as opposed to the standard classroom environment. How do those children, like how do they make it to the next step? I think most of the kids are, or in a way, learn the process. So if you do end up in a high school that you didn't really find your fit, you you still pretty much finish it just like you finish high school here. And then you can still go and try for college. So if you would go uh, learn word work or something that's uh, a trade that you now are like, well, I want to be an IT guy because I figure out that I can fix buddy's computer and I kind of um, start tinkering and Googling and figuring stuff out and that's my passion, you would try to probably hire a tutor to, to get your education to the level that you can compete in the exams and then get to college. So you could still, you would still have the base that you could go to college. Gotcha. Okay. You probably wouldn't have all the, all the skills of the kids that they went to high school to get ready for the college and figure out what they want to do. You wouldn't have enough, probably enough math and, and other things that ling- language is a big thing. So you have to have a language to get into college. So you would, you know, German was very popular. English is very popular. And then there was the um, not as popular like French and Spanish, but you would have to take an exam in a the, in the different language. And I, and I struggle with that one so bad. <laughs> oh my gosh. I studied German for like 15 years and I was fluent, but the grammar, I just, I just struggle with the grammar so much. And English, I was fluent, but I wasn't as comfortable with as German. I was not able to, I could understand what people were talking, but I wasn't able to reply and say, and if it was written, it was okay. But again, the grammar just kills me on everything. So uh, it was, but it's different because you pick up the language when you are in a third grade of elementary school. Oh, really? So they start foreign languages younger? Yeah, third grade is your first language, and then the fifth grade is your second. Wow, really? So they see, that's something that like, man, as as in a, you know, growing up in a small town here in in Colorado, I always always wished I'd like learned Spanish or something, especially now because like we have a large Hispanic population that, um, you know, you, you can go downtown and you could easily speak Spanish on a daily basis. And um yeah, I think there's been a lot of research now. Like, I think if you look at, like, even some of those language learning programs, they essentially try to role model them off of, like, how children learn a young language, you know? So there's this idea, maybe, that, you know, back to, like, neuroplasticity and a child's mind really being able to pick up different languages. And, man, I wish that was something that we embraced a little bit more here, here in the U.S., or at least in Colorado. I mean, it may be different if you if you live in California where there's even a larger Hispanic population. And so, Spanish is far more prominent. And so, you know, maybe it makes more sense there. I don't know, but man, I'm, I'm always jealous that I, you know, 
here I am. I'm that standard American with, that just speaks English uh, and not very well at that either, you know. Um, so what was it like growing up, you know, like how did your, what was the, how did your parents kind of instill the values of, hey, this is really important? Because it, it, it starts at, you know, in first grade and you're still probably wanting to get outside and play in the dirt and, you know, run around circle, you know, run around and burn off all that energy. So how do your, how was it instilled by your, your parents to help you kind of really focus on education uh, to kind of help you get where you are today? There was a reward system in place and I am very competitive. And um, if you place a challenge since I was a little kid, it's like, I just want to, I just want to try it out. It's not about winning. It's just about trying it out and seeing if I can, if I can finish. So um, my parents always say you can you can go play if you finish your homework. You can go play if you have good grades. So they wouldn't really ground me for anything. It was more like a disappointed look and I'm disappointed. And that really got me. I don't know why, even if a little kid, most of the kids would be like, oh, okay, great. But I just, that was a lot of, there was a lot of, I, I think I remember I would get a one Slovakian crown. Now there are euros, but back then it was a Slovakian crown for an eight. And it wasn't a lot of money and it didn't have to be a lot of money. It was just like, ooh, here I come. Let's see if I can get one, right? So, the, and then there was a different rewards for A+. plus. There was no reward for anything below A. And there was the disappointment look for C's because they always say, well, the C's will not get you to a good high school. You need A's and B's. So A's and B's were what I was always aiming for. The big difference I think is that the sports here are a big thing. We don't do any, I wouldn't say any sports, but it's more like go play soccer with your friends. It's not organized. You don't go compete unless you're really into it and you would have to put a lot of money, which the whole country seemed like it didn't have much money then and didn't really insinuate on, we need to get those kids active because we were always outside playing and being active. It was just, so I didn't, I didn't play any instruments. I didn't play any sports. My afternoon wasn't packed with anything. Once I got my homework done, then I could go play. So I probably had good four hours every day to be able to play. Interesting. That's a, uh, I don't know. I, I'd, I'd never imagined that. So did you grow up in, uh, did you grow up in Slovakia when it was Czechoslovakia? Like, was it still one country or was that before? Yes. So it was Czechoslovakia until 1983. And I think oh, 1983. Okay. 1983. Um, it was, it was like a, I always call it like a high school couple because Czech Republic and Slovakia, they've been together, then they split, then they got together, then they split. So in 1993, when we got split again, everybody was expecting, well, this is going to be 10 years, and we'll get back together. But this time it looks like it's permanent. And uh, at least as far as looks like. So before that, and, and it's kind of interesting when you see big changes in the country because you get through, now we have a different money. Before it was a Czechoslovakian and now it's a Slovak crown. And then you went through uh, the whole Euro in uh, early 2000s, 2004, I wanna say. 
somewhere there. Because I remember my first paycheck, it was still in, in, in crowns and it looked much better because it was thousands. And then when it got to euros, it wasn't as much because the, um, the exchange was like a one to 30 or something, one euro for 30 crowns or something like that. So, but anyway. So like, is there a big cultural difference between people who are Czech and people who are Slovakian? So is there kind of already this natural divide? Does that make sense? Like there's like, I know there's parts, uh, I think it's France where it's called like the Basque country and the people there, like they, they call them, they call themselves like they're, they're Basque. They're not French, you know, or maybe it's near Spain. My geography is a little off, but like there's clearly a cultural kind of divide there. Um, and I think there's also the same thing in Somalia. So I think if you go to like, I think it's uh, Eastern Somalia, or there's a part of the country where they even use a different currency. They kind of have a different, completely different culture, but yet it's one country. So mm-hmm. is there a big difference between the Czech culture and the Slovakian culture? I would say there's a little bit differences, but there isn't much. I guess the one biggest one is that we didn't even realize the kids that we speak different languages, but because you grow up with it, you just know both languages at the same time because the TV is pretty much in both languages. So you kind of just flip through the channels and it's a Slovakian cartoon and then it's a Czech cartoon. So you just pick it up as a kid and it comes natural. So it's a different language and um, maybe different food, but as far as, we're pretty we always say it's like a brothers and sisters we're a little different but we're still from the same mother or father so yeah so other than like some of the things that you kind of mentioned before like all of a sudden you have a different currency and that sort of thing did you notice anything like were there any big shifts in your life when all of a sudden now it's two separate countries or is there like a i mean was there like a big armed conflict or anything was there any like big disruptions in your life or was it just kind of this there was there was nothing that I could recall, but I was, I wasn't, I think, old enough to kind of pay much attention to it. Um, and I think after it was, what is it, like eight years, five years, just a couple of years after the revolution where we broken up from the whole Russia and become a Czechoslovakia. So it was, there was a lot of changes going on through that maybe decade that people were probably more um, open and not scared. But I I just remember my dad always tells me story of um, during the communism when he went to the store and the color TV came first to the market. And he was super excited. They saved up their money. And when the color TV came out, that went and stood in line and stood in line because that was totally normal to stand in line for bread, stand in line for meat, uh, empty shelves and trying to get something. And uh, he stood there for so many hours that when his turn came, they were completely out of color TVs. So he brought home this tiny little TV that we had just till recent. It was kind of archive at this point, um, but um, ancient one I meant to say but my mom was like what is that it's small it's so small what did you buy and he said it's not even color honey but I stood there for so long and you wanted a new TV this is all that was left so I brought it here so that's the story of the color TV and you know it was one of those that you still have to stand up and change the channels yeah 
It had only five channels, probably not even that. And it was tiny, it was super tiny and heavy, of course. And I think they had it in the attic forever. And then one day they're like, we clean up the attic, the TV's gone. I was like, what? <laughs> no, yeah. not the tiny TV. <laughs> That's awesome. That's probably worth some money now. Could have yeah. So what's the economic system like in Slovakia? Is it like, is it, I mean, I mean, we hear about this, we hear this conversation a lot these days, you know, we hear about the, the communist party in China and then we hear about kind of like the democratic socialistic model in, in the Scandinavian countries. And then we have the U S which is a Republic. So what kind of, what kind of model, you know, after this breakup and leaving, you know, Czechoslovakia leaving this communist country of, of Russia and then eventually separating two separate countries. What was it like there? So right now it's, it's a, it's a free market. So it's, it's very similar to us. Um, I think the taxation is much easier back home because it's a, it was a flat rate when I was uh, leaving. And I know it's, it's probably crazy because it changes so much here. It changes from every year to almost like it felt like the last couple months, something always changed, especially the PPP loans and stuff. But um, it's uh, it's a lot of small businesses. I don't think it's as many small businesses here. It's mostly the foreign investments are coming to the country. Uh, the tourism is um, or was not sure how the COVID impacted that um, industry there, but it's uh, it's a lot of foreign investments. So to bring you back to the vet space a little bit, I mean, do in Slovakian culture is, you know, household pets are, is that a, you know, is it similar to here in the U S like people really cherish their dogs or is it, you know, do they have a different approach? I think it changed with the, with the time there's more and more people who have pets. Um, I remember the only person in the family who had a pet was my aunt because she, we, we all live in the city and it was kind of like, well, if you live in the city, you don't have a pet. If you live outside of the city and you have a house with a yard, that's when you have a dog that's going to guard your home. And then you have a couple of cats so they can catch the mice. So when my parents, when I was in college, they moved outside of the city and bought a, bought a house with a yard. Uh, they got a couple of cats. And uh, I always thought I was like super cat lady. Like I love every kitty out there. And um, I thought they were super cool because they were so independent and then they would bring the mice and be all proud and anyway um, but just recently well not that recently but um, when I got Bella I totally realized that I am not a cat person I love dogs <laughs> training them I love spending time with them it's like uh, my best friend now it's a it's a it's a definitely a life changer so then is like is the like is the vet industry here in the U.S. and then also over in like UK, in the UK, and I think also Germany is pretty large, you know, because there's a lot of people that now, I mean, we, we saw a massive shift from, you know, kind of this idea that if we just take the dog example that, you know, dogs are just farm animals that are meant, you know, working animals that are meant to work and they live outside and they do their job to now, I mean, there's whole clothing lines designated to dogs. So we saw this massive cultural shift in pet ownership uh, here in the U.S. So, What's the veterinary industry? Do you know? I mean, you may maybe you don't know, but what what is the veterinary industry like in Slovakia? Yeah, I don't think I have enough information for that since it's been 
11 years since I've been there and um, I'm pretty sure a lot of things changed because I can see every time when I go visit that there's a lot of pets uh, in the cities, uh, outside, outside of the cities as well. And there is a lot of people who do dress their pets, especially for the Halloween and you see the pictures on Facebook. So I could, I could tell that it shifted and it changed, but to what degree, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Just my, like my generation dressing the pets or if it's like a you know whole nation is now <laughs> yeah or a whole big cultural shift so how do you go for, like how do you end up in the united states so i uh went through the work and travel program through college and i went to my first year i spent in north carolina and the whole idea was uh, no i'm sorry south carolina myrtle beach south carolina and the whole thing was to be able to speak English. So you work all summer long and you learn the language and then you go home. So my first year, I, I really struggled and everybody from my friends, they went to like New York. And so I was, I was by myself and I couldn't, I couldn't even talk back. I, I understood some, but there was a lot of, I don't know, the East Coast people talk fast. And there is some accent, either Southern or the New Yorker accent. <laughs> yeah. A lot, a lot, a lot of headaches that I was like, I have no idea what you just said. So it wasn't like I can go look up the words in a, in a vocabulary dictionary. It just was like, I have no idea. Uh, so the first summer was a, was quite a struggle. But when I came home, I, I was able to, I, I, I was thinking I was much more fluent and I could, I could do and talk and, understand so it was it was a good experience it was a long three months because I worked two jobs and pretty much non-stop seven days a week no no break no nothing and one reason for that was that uh, it was very expensive to just the ticket and um, so I had to I had to like earn my I, I borrowed the money and I had to pretty much um, pay it all back when I came back and I think I had enough money to buy a snowboard that was it so I, I, I got a new snowboard out of it and I was uh, pretty good in English. And um, then I decided to go again to United States for the next summer and end up in Cody, Wyoming. Cause I wanted to Interesting. see Cody, Wyoming. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> so I wanted to see the national park. I did a little bit more traveling then. So the whole idea of the program, and I think it's a great program for, for the students is to le learn the language and then, uh, you should like make the money and then kind of spend most of it in the end of your trip to just travel. So lots of kids just did two months of traveling and uh, I'm sorry, two months of working and then one month of traveling. But that was the kids that their parents would give the money and said, okay, here you go. But because I always had to repay my portion, then it was kind of like, well, I don't really have enough to travel because I have to repay. Um, uh, but Cody, Wyoming was a, was a great experience. It was a, I don't know if you've been there. It's a tiny little town, touristy. And um, yeah, tiny. But the summer was great. Um, so, and after that, I did, um, uh, I, didn't, I didn't meet a guy uh, that summer. And I came back again. And we were dating for those two summers. And uh, then we got married. Uh, so that's kind of how I got pulled out of Slovakia. Um, and then, then I started my CPA journey that I 
we did for the permits and green card and all that uh, very, very, very long journey. And um, unfortunately, it didn't work out. We were married for seven years. Um, moved to Idaho Falls. And um, yeah, I already forgot what the question was. How did I get No, here? yeah, 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 yeah. That's how I got yeah. here. Yes. Gotcha. <laughs> Interesting. So, you know, so you end up getting married and then, I mean, is all your family still in Slovakia or did they move out here or? Yeah, the whole family is still in Slovakia. So we go visit every every year. I go there every year and they come every year. So we so, so when you you know when when you when the marriage ends, why what kept you in the US? Why why stay here? That's a great question. I was always thinking, well, this is the only thing that's keeping me here, but after seven years, so my whole thing was that I was working for a big company back home, the PricewaterhouseCoopers. It was a prestige. Everybody was like, good for you. This is going to be great. And then I got here and everybody's like, oh, MBA, Slovakia. Okay, great. Uh, we have an opening for a housekeeper or a waitress. <laughs> so I, I would work uh, two, three jobs and um, try to save up money so I can fly home for uh, for the sum for a couple couple weeks or something in the summer, um, and then I would study for the CPA exam. And the CPA exam was like the the, the books are like super thick. And I remember the first one just to read it. It took me a whole year because it was a very technical, different. You know, I could I could have a conversation and tell you how I am and where my family is and what do I do for a living, but I couldn't really do any technical accounting, tax, any of that. So I would spend nights with dictionary in my hand trying to just translate this book and learn new new words. And, um, and then I started taking the exams. So I completed the exams and uh, then I finally felt like, okay, now I got the license. Now I just need to have a good job and I got a good job and I liked it. And then with the transition to veterinary space, I totally loved it. And I had a portfolio of clients that I was uh, close with and I loved helping them. And then when uh, my marriage broke, it was kind of like, okay, so do I go home and now catch up on everything that changed there? Because still, even if I would go in tax, HR, or anything with the economics, it would be like a seven-year gap of whatever happened, right? And so it was more on a career side that I decided that I'm going to stay at least for a, for a few more years and see how I like it if I want to go back. And um, that's been four years ago. So um, my mom always said, well, you're all Americanized. You put ice cubes in your, <laughs> your beverages and you eat that sweet bread might as well enjoy it there. So, yeah, what's the what's the sweet bread? Any bread here, almost. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we we just. I remember when I came, I had a hard time finding anything that wasn't sweet. Like everything tasted sweet, and my mom is always the same way when she comes and visits. She's like, "This is sweet. This is sweet," and I can't even tell anymore. I'm like, "Oh, I didn't think this was sweet." That's because you're fully Americanized. <laughs> You know, that's, that's actually a great point because I think, um, you know, I'm really fascinated with nutrition science and, 
you know, there's this whole thing about sugar addiction and how it's just as addictive as cocaine and a lot of other drugs. And I think that's kind of a great anecdote as to how a lot of our foods are here and how much sugar we add to everything. And then I think when you become more conscious of it and you start looking at labels, you're like, oh yeah, high fructose corn syrup in this, you know, maltodextrin in this, you know, it's just like it is, it's everywhere and you don't really realize it um, because we live it every day. So it's interesting to hear an outside perspective, like, yeah, it's so sweet. <laughs> yeah, we always make fun because when I came home, uh, my mom is like, I stock up the freezer. I have ice cubes in there. And I opened it all excited. And I was like, mom, that's like five ice cubes. <laughs> oh, it should last all day, shouldn't it? I'm like, that might last me a drink. Drink, yeah. Things. So, yeah. So, tell me about the ice cube thing. Why Why is it? That does definitely seem to be an American thing. Like, I love London. And um, I love iced tea, right? I don't like southern sweet tea. I like it plain black. But I do love iced tea. And, you know, whenever... I have been in Europe. One thing that I miss, you know, when you come back home, I'm like, Oh, I'm gonna have the biggest glass of iced tea. It's gonna be so great. And I've like, when you go to like, but when you're over there, there's, it, it is like ice is this weird thing. So why, what, what's the, what's the deal with ice in Europe? I think it's just how you are, grow, what kind of surroundings you grow up with. So it doesn't taste weird. It doesn't feel weird. It's, it's nothing that you were like, Oh, you never think about it. There is like, I, if it's a cold day, you want a cold beverage, but you're not going to put ice cube in there. You're just going to take it out of the fridge and <laughs> it, you know, just sitting on a counter. And, um, in the restaurants, if you want a beverage, they usually don't put any ice because, I don't know if now they have it, but I never seen a free refill ever in my life till I got uh, So the free refills, if you if you're paying for the Coke and you put ice cubes in there, now you don't have as much Coke because it's part of glass. Yeah. You would get less. And I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but that was something like, Do you want ice? And everybody's like, No, because I'm gonna get less Coke. Yeah. You're already used to just the cold. And I and I remember the transition. I might have started putting maybe ice cube here, ice cube there. To me, it was completely unexplainable to have people putting ice when it's cold outside. It's like, it's cold outside. Don't you want it? <laughs> Warm. Warm. Yeah. Like, Water, what's that? Uh-uh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's but, interesting. Yeah, to the point that I, I now like, yeah, fill up my glass of ice and then I put beverage. So my mom is always like, oh my gosh, what happened? <laughs> yeah, you're so different. You've changed. You've changed. So how, so how did you end up in uh, Idaho? I had a job with uh, airlines in Cody, Wyoming. So I had, I was a waitress and I was a housekeeper and I was an airline employee. And then it kind of all fell apart and I was just an airline employee. I shouldn't say just, but I finally had like one. No, I think I still had two jobs. Anyway, the airline was the one of the better jobs because I could, um, I had a health insurance and I was uh, able to fly with their benefits, which was great. And it extended to my parents. So that was one of the reasons why I tried it. And I loved it. I love airplanes and uh, Cody, Wyoming has like the tiniest airport. So it wasn't like you work, I wouldn't say you wouldn't work as hard, but you, got to experience pretty much everything. So you would start with a check-in, you would greet everyone. And I love that part, the customer service, hi, how's it going? Chatting with people. 
where are you going? And, and then you would uh, pretty much run in the back and load their backs on the plane. And then you come to the gate and you would board them. And then you would run out, send the plane out. And if it's freezing, you would jump in a de-ice truck and spray the aircraft so it's free of and then send the aircraft out. So it was like all of it. And they started, uh, I think they lost a couple flights or some contract or something. And they said, we will uh, be only part-timers and I would not have a health insurance. And then um, back then my husband was just about to go through the surgery with his uh, shoulder. So I was going to lose the insurance and we'll have to pay for the surgery. And the airline has a great system where they say you can transfer anywhere you want. And I was uh, looking around and I found out how falls just on the other side of the park. And I do love the national parks. So I was like, well, let's, uh, let's see if they, if I can get hired there. And they took me right away. So we just pack up stuff and do a U-Haul through the park on the other side and offload it on the other side and move to Idaho Falls. Nice. And so, uh, and then that's where the uh, the Bell Accounting Group that you work for, that's where they're based out of. Yes. <laughs> so how did that, how did that relationship start? Where, what was the, inter- how did that, uh, yeah, how did that come about? Yeah, so that was, uh, I was still doing my CP exam. So I did two in Wyoming and then I transferred them over to Idaho and did two in Idaho. And then I um, started looking for somebody who would take me kind of under their wings to um, employ me and so I can get the required hours. Uh, so Jim is a CPA. He uh, was looking for somebody to add to the team. I got hired. And um, then when I got all my hours, become a CPA. So I was working part-time there and full-time at the airport for uh, probably two years. And then I swapped it and started working full-time after I got my license full-time for Jim and then part-time for the airport. Um, so the airport always like stay there in the background because it was more like hobby and the flying benefits were so great. And it was awesome to be out in uh, like nature pretty much. I mean, ramp, but it's, it's outside in the fresh air. So after, after, you know, sitting in the office for a couple hours, it was kind of nice to just spend the evening at the airport or early morning there. Um, but yeah. So I, I swapped it and then uh, four years ago, I became a partner and uh, uh, we start attending more and more national veterinary conferences and uh, the really the veterinary niche kind of took off. Uh, we kind of burst all in, got rid of um, 60% of our clients, the, I think it was like the maybe five years ago. So it was like everybody who was here, we, um, we referenced to other CPA firm and we still do some of the compliance work, but mostly we uh, try to add value to the veterinarian. So we do focus on more on the technical side. And that's something that I loved and enjoy uh, more on the technology geek. Like I try to go for all the little efficiencies and, um, and adding value there. So not a lot of people in Idaho, not many veterinarians are trying to embrace the technology as much as we would like. So that's when we decided to go national and that kind of opened the door drastically because everything is in the cloud and there's a lot of young veterinarians that they grow up with it and they know it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been great. 
So from a technology perspective, what are some things that you really like or what are some things in the industry that you're seeing that are um, really improving or making things better? I really like that when system talks, so you don't have to think about it. Like um, just recently when they, well, it wasn't, I guess, that recent, but when Petlink announced that they will integrate better and EasyVet, that was like, oh my gosh. Like I think for a receptionist to um, have more work on her shoulders it's or his shoulders, I think a veterinary reception is one of the, position that people don't realize how hard it is and how much knowledge that person has to have to sit there and answer all the right questions, uh, all the questions and give them the right answers, what they can say and what they cannot say. So for me to just discover a little efficiency that now when you get a microchip, uh, if you pet, you don't have to do the whole registration of paper and then or send an email to the client and they have to fill it out. So if that can integrate and the receptionist, as soon as she invoices it, it does it in the background. I think that's a great time saver. The same with the integrated lab work. If you can kick it out of software and not fill out a form, I mean, just imagine how many times we make mistakes with writing phone numbers, email addresses, like anything that you handwritten, some people can read it because of your handwriting. So I think there's a lot of things that can be improved with integrated softwares that you, you don't have to do a double entry or you don't have to think about it like, oh, now I have to go and fill out this form and mail it somewhere or enter. Yeah. So now as a, as a partner, I mean, what are your, what are you trying to, like, what are your kind of goals and what's driving you to be better in the vet space? I mean, what kind of excites you and what sort of things are, things are you trying to do to really kind of be different? So we do have, um, I guess, so to clarify, so uh, we're two partners and Jim is the visionary. So he's the one who comes up with the ideas and says, oh my gosh, we should do this. And I'm the integrator. Uh, I don't know if you read Traction. It's a great book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of on, the, on that base. I'm the integrator her who listens to the visionary. And if I'm like, okay, that goes with our goals and visions, like we set in the beginning of whenever, beginning of the, of the time, and then yes, let's pursue it. And this is how we get there. Step one, two, three, four, five. So I'm the one who is more on processes in how can we get this done. Uh, so to, to understand that, Jim is mostly the one who comes up with the ideas. I do have some creative um, stuff, but more on the processes, like how we can get this done. Uh, we always go for um, ideas to the national conferences. So we're trying to always stay with the trends, what's going on. Um, we recently, both of us, well, I recently, but Jim has been vet partners for a while, um, joined vet partners. So we're trying to connect with the like-minded people who we believe that they are the leaders of the industry and they're driving the industry to not just connect, but to learn from them um, to better us so we can better uh, our clients and help their practices to thrive. I think that if you if you just stay with what you know and don't keep improving, it's going to be really hard to change. And I think change is something that's driving the industry right now because I think everything around changed so drastically that the veterinary industry seemed to be like a little bit behind on a few things. Um, like, the, like the telehealth and uh, human industry, it's been there for a while. 
And it seems like the veterinary industry is just um, barely breaking through. And in our state, and I know there's many states like that, that they don't allow it, uh, which I think is unfortunate. But I think there's a lot of things that will change in the near future for the veterinary practices with the technology coming in. So as somebody who's very much, you know, like getting back to the traction model, which I, I think is a great book. If nobody has read it, um, especially if you're a practice manager or a practice owner listening to this, I think it's definitely something that, to take a look at. And um, yeah, I think it's really, really great read, but I'm definitely kind of more of a visionary, you know, like that's, I think I'm very much big, big picture. How do we change? How do we evolve? How do we become better? And then if you were to put me in a seat like you, which is the operation side, that's where I kind of struggle. So give me some insight from somebody who's very much an operational person. Because um, looking through at my lids, I'm like, oh, look, but like, aren't you worried that you're, you're not coming up with the big ideas? Or you don't have that power to come up with the big ideas, but maybe you actually really thrive on just taking, okay, this is a great idea. Now let me put the pieces together to make it work and actually handle the operations of that. So give me some insight as to what it's like to be an operations person. I think it really uh, boils down to what, to what you believe into. So if there is a vision that you believe into, and then there is an idea that you are like, this is really going to fit the mission and the vision. Then I think that's what fuels me up that I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is exactly what, what we needed. I can't believe that we just now come up with it. And I say we, because mostly it's Jim who comes up with the idea, but I'm still like, we come up with it because it's kind of, we, we own it to, together, those ideas and the processes. So he, you would hear him saying, yeah, we figure out the process. And you might be thinking, well, wasn't it that Mira figured out the process? But it's that there's so much in it that we always give feedback to each other. So if, if there's an idea that he presents, I might be the one who says, well, that would work, but what if, and there's a little spin on it. So, um, and then we kind of brainstorm on it. Uh, we do like to inv uh, involve our staff members as well. So it's like, hey, what do you think? And so everybody has kind of a different spin on it maybe. And then the idea that was just very, like you said, big picture kind of broad, bring the whole team together and kind of said, okay, well now we have it more like I can visualize it. Now it's measurable goal. Now it's maybe something that everybody can see that it's a obtainable. And then me as an integrator, I just like to do everything in steps. So um, like they say, don't eat the whole elephant, right? Um, so I like to do the process like, okay, I think we need to get this done, this done, this done. And, and there was an exercise that I think it's a great exercise is um, that on one side you can put where you are, on the other side where you put where you want to be. And then imagine that there is no money issues, no time issues, there's nothing. You can do anything you want and how you get there. So if it's like, well, I would have to have money, then you would just put, I would have to have money and how much money. So you really, I really go into detail, like how can we achieve this? Like what is, what's the obstacle here? And how can we remove the obstacle or can we remove the obstacle? And if not, is there something that we can go around? So I, I'm more on like a puzzle, like a maze, like, okay, come on over here and look how it looks here. And mm -mm, that's not going to work. So over here and, and it's like, the light bulb of Edison. You just keep trying and sometimes you fail and sometimes you fail again and sometimes you learn and sometimes you're like, ah, oh, I already did this mistake, didn't I? And you just keep going until you figure it out. 
So there is, I mean, listening to you talk about that, there is a lot of creativity in it because you are the problem solver, right? You have to figure out how to get from point A to point B. And then there's that gap in the middle. And so you become the problem solver. And there's a lot of creativity in solving problems and like, okay, well, we've hit this roadblock, but how do we get around that? And how do I figure that out? And how do I suss that out? So there are actually, um, it was pretty eye-opening because there actually is a lot of creativity in that, that idea process. So you mentioned a little bit about also involving kind of your team when it comes to some of these bigger decisions and, uh, or maybe not bigger decisions, but when it comes to implementing these new ideas and getting their thoughts, when you guys were creating like the, the mission and the values for the organization, what was the team involvement like then? I think we involved all the members that we had then um, if, if they, if they can identify themselves and, but it was mostly that um, we kind of defied the, the core values. Um, and I don't know if you'll recall, but the traction does tell you like involve the core management and the core values, what you believe in, the values that you want to pursue as a company and as an individual. And then you pretty much look at your staff and that was in the people section of that book and says, does this person have that value or do they have the scale? And I think there was like a, you write them and it's quite the process, but it was a very eye-opening where we, where you can be like, well, this person has all those skills, but it doesn't have the values. So then it comes to the wrong person on a wrong, um, wrong, in wrong. Seat or yeah. uh, right person in the, in the uh, wrong seat. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's quite the process, but like I said, we didn't really involve on the core values, but we did, um, I think what we are, it's kind of shaping who we hire. And so our hiring process is usually takes a long time and it's uh, more creative maybe than the others. Like our last hire, we did um, ask for submit your, submit a video. Why, why would you want, and we like throw a couple questions at them and it has to be on a certain amount of minutes. And it's interesting because a lot of people want the job. So we would get like hundred applicants but only two videos will come back. So you kind of weed out right away the ones that are just looking for a job and they're not really going extra mile to get it even, you know? So how are they going to get extra mile to, to learn and to grow if they are not even able to? Yeah, so maybe elaborate on that a little bit. I'm, I'm especially fascinated about that um, as I'm growing and, and thinking about my hiring process. And uh, shout out to Taylor Kavanaugh from Pet Desk because he actually gave me a, a great book that I'm reading right now. It's called Who? And it walks you through this whole process of how to find who the right people are um, and, and to get them in your organization. So we, what you said that your hiring process is a little bit unique. And you know, being in a different, with a different organization and looking at our hire, hiring process, it was interesting because I always heard this acronym that was like, uh, hire slow, fire fast, mm-hmm. um, where it seemed like we were the opposite. It was like, uh, we, we were kind of hiring fat, we were hiring fast and then we weren't really fi- firing slow, but also looking back on it, you know, I think looking at, you know, in this book, they talk about this, this concept of, that if you keep essentially having to fire the, the, you know, one person for a specific role, then you clearly don't understand the role, you know, and, and what you're looking for. And that definitely was our problem. Um, now looking back at it, because it was like, we were, we were constantly like, Oh, this, how come this person isn't following this process or doing that? And it's like, well, 
we didn't know what that process was, you know, in hindsight. So how do you, what, yeah, without giving away all, all the sauce, I mean, how, what is your guys' hiring process like and how do you find the right? And I guess what I'm really interested in is because it's easy to look at somebody from a skills perspective, right? Like mm-hmm. you maybe a, from a technical perspective, I can say, okay, from, you know, if, you know, what are, what are the three cornerstones of data protection, right? And then we'd be like, oh, CIA, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Okay, great. So you understand that concept. Uh, how do we go about ensuring confidentiality? How do we go ensure about integrity and how we go about ensuring availability? And they can answer all those things technically. But I think what is more important is if you don't find the right cultural fit and you're not intentional about the culture you make within your organization, the culture will make itself. So how do you guys go about sussing out the right cultural fit around the values that you guys have, have developed? That's a great question. And I wish there would be like a simple answer to that, but I think most of it it's when you fail, you learn. So I, when I was, uh, put on a shoulder of the hiring process. I, I didn't know what I know now, but I think uh, the hiring is, is something that's very important and I think it's very tedious, long process. If it's not long process, it's usually, like you said, it's a, it's a fast hire and a slow fire. And I can see that in the veterinary practices, like people are the core of many, many service-based businesses. But um, so ours, the same as veterinary business, it's very important to hire the right person. Otherwise, it can poison your culture and uh, take away your revenue and um, burn your reputation. So our, our hiring process starts with a great description of the position. So what are you looking for? And I think, like you said, if, you, if you're not sure what position are you trained to cover, it's kind of hard for, to find the right candidate if you don't know what the position is. And I attended at one of the conferences, the Dave Nickel and Andrew, Andy Rourke, they had a great session on that, that really changed my mind on how I'm going to post jobs in the future. Um, and he was very funky, quirky kind of, descriptive like his description of the position was a lot of questions and uh, he recommended that the position should list everything that they do or they're expected to do but more than more importantly it was on the soft skills so uh, are you are you always looking for something to learn are you um, so it would be like questions that they are defining your core values um, ours is self-improvement, so we're really high on the self-improvement um, because we want people to always learn and keep going because the industry keeps changing. So you have to have to have that in you to to be eager to learn and to to go find the new information. So we would always put in the description: Are you eager to learn new things? Which a lot of people are like, yes. If you would ask them in the interview, they're just going to say yes. But uh, we would design the whole thing that it would um, ask a couple questions. And then uh, you would put the description of the position and then you would ask more questions and there would be more defining of the individual or of the company. So first is kind of like to make it for them to want to read more. And when I tried this Dave Nickel, Andrew Rourke approach the first time, it was kind of interesting because people would call and they said, you wrote that ad for me. You got to hire me. I told (laughs) myself in it. 
And I got a couple of those calls and I was like, wow, this is, this is a, this is a totally different approach. And I loved it. Um, we do interviews in person and again, with the fail and, and learn, we start doing a little knowledge base. Like you said, name something or, um, we went to, I, I just believed always that you can train. Uh, if they have the right background education, you can train almost for anything. And the soft skills, if they're there, great. So uh, the other way around, it's, it's much harder to have the really technical person and no soft skills or completely out of the culture that's always been a burner. So I know that's not going to work. Um, but usually when you're looking at the resume and it looks great, you are like, well, what, you know, look at, say so you're already biased when that person walks in because you're like, wow, this is the person I need. And then they start talking and they haven't done anything for past five years. One of our questions, like how, uh, tell me two ways how you improved in the past year. And they're just blank. Like they don't read, they don't attend any webinars, seminars, like nothing. So it's like, well, that's kind of hard. Um, so I guess I think more you do it, better you get, better you get it, get at it, right? Yeah. So um, how is that? How has that been? I mean, when you talk about learning from your failures, what I think is tough about the hiring process is that a lot of times we, you know, we're, we're talking about people and we're talking about people's lives, and having to let somebody go is never easy and it's never fun. Um, and what I also think is interesting you know, think, thinking a little bit laterally here is like for the longest time, and I think it's going away now, but uh, in the Japanese culture, there's this idea of permanent employment. And so people would get hired on and it would almost be impossible. You, you, you essentially couldn't let them go because uh, once they kind of came out of college and got a job with you, they had permanent employment. And so it was this idea of what I loved about it is that it, it forced managers to think about them from a, what are their strengths perspective and then putting them in roles that made them successful in strengths. But if you're a small business, your budget is limited. And so you can't really, you may have somebody that, again, it's maybe it's the right person, wrong seat, but you don't have that seat available. And so what do you do? Um, so how have you learned from your mistakes with some of your staff? Well, I think part of it was that we, hire somebody who seemed to have a lot of skills and didn't and the position that we're hiring required to have those skills. So, um, and we do have a review process. So most of the times um, I'm not going to say hundred percent, but we want to think it's hundred percent. Nothing leaves the company unless it's um, it's been reviewed and it's correct. So if, um, if you hire somebody who you believe has a lot of skills and then they prove themselves, they don't, I think that uh, letting go was much easier than somebody who was, um, or I would say, <laughs> I'll take it back. There was not one time that I was like, oh, I'm going to fire this person because I don't like her and she doesn't do a good job. Like to me, like everybody, because we're so small and every business that we work are small. So we kind of understand like what's going on. Like we, it's like a small families and you kind of, get to like them, you know, their kids, you know, what's going on in their life. So it's really hard to push somebody off the board, especially if they, if they maybe like the job, but they, um, but most of the times that I learn is that the people don't enjoy the job anymore because they're not good at it. Um, you throw training and, and more training and they're still not good at it. So they're not having fun at work. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. So it's kind of, um, most of, most of the people that I had were almost like when we did like a sit down, like, let's just talk about your, your job and your work. They would even say like, I, I almost feel like I'm not a good fit because I just can keep up with the changes and I can keep going. And you, I think it's really hard. The hiring process, it would be nice to be able to, like you said, be a bigger company and uh, make it, uh, make somebody else do the hiring for you that would know your company and would know what works well with the culture and everything. But um, I think that's one of the things that we always hire. Uh, the same, the veterinary practices, most of them are tiny little, right? Four, five, um, 10 people working there. Everybody knows everyone. They know what's going on in their lives. They might know that they're struggling with their bills. So now you feel guilty because you can't let them go because how are they going to pay their bill in the end of the month? So all of those things are really hard. The one thing that I learned is that when you let somebody go with a low performance, it does strengthen the hospital. It does strengthen your business because everybody else has a now new standard. You know how everybody just reverts to the bad apple, like you are mm -hmm. as weak as your weakest link. That's how it always feels like when you let the low performers go, your bar just raced. Well, it's been fascinating and we're coming to the end of the hour here. So this is kind of the time when, um, you know, it's, it's you, it's your, this is your soapbox. You know, you can promote anything you want to all the listeners out there. Where can they find out more about you? Is there any, do you guys have anything interesting coming down the pipe? Um, yeah. So the Thanks. audience is yours. Thanks, man. Well, I just wanted to thank you for having us. Uh, if you guys have any, any questions for us, for me or Jim, our company is called JFL Group. We can be fine on jflgroup.com or cpasforveterinarians.com. Uh, we're also on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. And um, to just clarify, if you think that we're CPAs that just do your taxes, we're not. We can work alongside your CPA. Uh, we do some of the compliance work, but that's not our, our core. That's not our where we add the value. We thrive in helping your practice to thrive. To, and we can only help small practices, like I mentioned before. Our biggest clients has three locations and five doctors. Um, we do a lot of benchmarking. Uh, financial data, uh, like I mentioned, integrations on your software. So we always assess your accounting software and everything that you have currently going on with your practice management software to make sure that you are efficient and that you can gain back your time. Awesome. Again, any information, just reach out. We'll be happy to uh, chat. JFL Group, get your get your numbers handled get get your number get your numbers right uh, awesome well thank you so much uh it truly was a pleasure talking with you and thank you for for taking out of your time your uh taking time out of your day if i could talk uh to spend time with you it, it truly was an honor thank you Glenn. it was fun thanks thank you